Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Get $75 off any Plan Academy course by visiting planacademy.com forward slash chatter. That's planacademy.com forward slash C-H-A-T-T-E-R. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by JustDo.com. JustDo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at Project Chatter. I agree, Val. I like to keep things simple and JustDo is perfect for that. But I do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well. And one of my favorites is the task-specific chat. Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out JustDo.com. Now on with the pod. G'day, project people. You're listening to the soothing sounds of the Project Chatter podcast. I'm your host, and I'm back, uh, Matthews. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Dale Fung. Oh dear, the soothing sounds of Val is back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you probably missed him on the last pod. Maybe you didn't, but he is back, rearing to go. Um, and we have a hugely, hugely exciting special episode today, don't we, Val? Oh, we do. We do. A topic that touches all of our hearts uh, for the geeks out there. Um, and as a reminder to our listeners, do hit that subscribe button on whichever platform you listen to your good podcasts on. And our new, I can't, I don't think we can call it new anymore, but we've got a YouTube channel. Um, all our podcasts are recorded and we've got some bonus bits and Q&A on there. So be sure to subscribe. Um, and if you would like to sponsor the podcast, you can get in touch with us via our website, projectchatterpodcast.com. Now, let's get on with the guest. In this pod, we are joined by Mr. Martin Paver, founder of Projecting Success, the London Project Data Analytics Meetup, and Project Hack. Um, how are you, Martin? Very good. Thanks, Val. Chilly here in the UK, but it's great to be talking to you. Yeah, looking forward to it. We are too. It's been a long time coming. We've seen you around. Um, obviously, the, the, the network of project controls is small. Uh, uh, and close, and, and uh, you're obviously a big influencer in the community. But um, before we get into the detail, uh, here is Dale with your bio. Cheers, Val. So this is a, I think it's a short and succinct and amazing bio, but I think there's definitely more to this. So we'll, we'll get into that too. But here goes. So Martin Pave is the CEO and founder of Projecting Success, a consultancy that specializes in leveraging project data to transform project delivery from high-end strategic consultancy <laughs> to, to apprentice training. And I see you got in the background there. Fantastic, Martin. Nice. For those on YouTube, we'll be able to see it. He has led a $1 billion mega project and a multi-billion pound portfolio office. He is the founder of Project Data Analytics Community, comprising of circa 6,000 members who share a passion for leveraging the exhaust plumes of Project Data. Is it 7,000 now? Has it grown Oy. since? Wow, Oy. that's amazing. Yeah, that. 
Awesome, awesome. So 7,000 members and growing. He regularly blogs and represents at international conferences, helping to ignite the professional imagination and inspire change. He is also the co-chair of the Project Data Analytics Task Force, and we're going to discuss that in detail today, and is helping to lead the charge for disruptive change. I love that last bit, disruptive change. It's amazing to have you on the pod, Mr. Martin Paver. Uh, how are you feeling? Are you raring to go? Fired up, thanks, Dale. Yeah. So we've got loads to talk about, and it's a really exciting topic. So yeah, let's get stuck in. Absolutely, absolutely. Just before we do, I I want to just um, sort of I, I love I love um, when we have such experts as yourselves, and and sort of you know the buyers give sort of the the the, the sort of the cream of the crop as to your career. But can we just start just giving those um, that are sort of perhaps starting their career a bit of your origin story and how you got into sort of this controls data space? Um, because I think often people find it perhaps one a bit daunting or two, they wonder how they can get involved. And you could probably touch on, you, you know, you you work with apprentices and, and, and that as well. Yeah, yeah. But um, it'd be interesting to hear your story and, and how you fell into it, or maybe you, you chose to get into it. So I started off as an engineer, so I'm a chart engineer. I got into uh, defense and I worked in that for about 20 years. Worked in NATO as well. I'm working on the Eurofighter Typhoon Simulator program. Um, I left defense because I felt a bit uh, frustrated about not being able to do exciting things that I wanted to do. And then I left, um, worked for a couple of companies, and then I went by myself. So I set up Projected Success in 2014, and I was a part shareholder in a second business, and we grew that. That was into project controls and PMOs and that sort of thing. And I found then that it was moving into more sort of body shopping, um, and I didn't mm. want to do that, you know, just selling bums on seats, doing project controls and, and PMO type work. So I sold out of that business in 2017, and that gave me a bit of cash. So at that point... I'd spent the previous two years thinking about this lessons learned and, and, and leveraging experience. And I thought we just got project after project after project where we're not learning from what's gone in the past and we're making the same mistakes time and time again. So I then started to study lessons learned and I became a bit of a terrorist in terms of just putting in lots of freedom of information requests and made myself really unpopular. And I pulled together 20,000 lessons learned and I wrote a paper with a chap from Australia, a chap called Dr. Stephen Duffield, and he'd spent six or seven years getting a PhD in lessons learned. And he got a similar background to me. He'd worked in aerospace and things like that. So he looked into projects um, on the lessons learned process and said it's broken. And then I brought my 20,000 lessons learned to it. And we talked about it for some time and said, you know, the entire system's broken. So I thought from all of that lessons learned, you know, I could dig into that, apply sort of data analytics and machine learning and get some secret source out of it. And I'll have some uh, whiz-bang algorithm, and that means we'll never make mistakes ever again on projects. And 12 months later, I was deeply sort of disappointed is that, you know, it was a blind alley. Um, and I learned a lot from it, but it was a 12-month blind alley. And the reason is we take all this complexity of projects and we boil it up into a trite statement, which is, you know, 60 words long or something like that. And you can't boil up all of that complexity 
into something so simple. And what we tend to do is we boil it up into something which is exactly the same what's in the body of knowledge. So there's nothing new. So I looked into it and I really got into it then. And I looked at data science and I realized that in terms of data science, what machine learning is trying to do is to learn from experience. That's what it does for a living. Right? That's what machine learning does. Yep. So I thought instead of humans trying to learn from all this experience and just trying to learn everything about everything in every possible situation, let's get a computer to do it. It can do the heavy lifting and it presents that knowledge to us at the point of consumption based around the context of that project or based around the difficulties of that project. So I then started to explore it further and I thought, you know, this is the answer. But the problem is the data is largely pretty crappy. So we need to get people to understand what do we need to do about all this data um, and can we start to drive up the data quality? And the problem with that is people aren't interested at the moment because they're all busy heads down delivering projects and this data coming out the back of a project is a big exhaust plume. And we've seen that with projects like Crossrail, for instance. It's a big exhaust plume out the back of a project. So if we don't leverage that data and we don't recognize its importance, then there's not a lot we can do with it. So we've got to change the entire culture. So that's why I've gone through the journey I've gone through. And now I'm really big on project data analytics because I really do think it's going to transform project delivery. And we'll see in the next five years, bigger changes than we've seen in the last 50. Wow. I think it's massively exciting. It, that that is definitely exciting um, because we often Val and I used to when we worked together discuss you know this can be done better machines can do this and you're like when's it coming and we're like is it coming in a year two years five years um, and it just seemed to take forever um, but exciting I think we're on the cusp is what you're saying just before we jump into um, all all of the the data science space and all that what what um, type of people are you seeing um, that do particularly well in the space. Um, and, and, and also perhaps what skills can, can, can those looking to get into it um, look to pick up um, to sort of gear themselves and arm themselves if they wanted to get into the space? So I think there's two sorts of people, really. It's a translator type role. So it's somebody probably in a leadership position, you know, 30, 35, 40 plus. Um, and they've got to understand a bit of project controls, a bit of project delivery, and have a passion for data science, and they can straddle that divide. I think they need to do a bit of it, but they're not going to be a deep expert in it because they're probably not going to be paid to get on the tools and start to do this day in, day out. And there's a second sort of person, which is either going to be a generalist, and they can do it all, or a deep expert, and they just focus on one strand of it like uh, Power BI and DAX and that sort of stuff, all go into uh, Python and machine learning. So in terms of the sort of people, we're seeing loads of different people. And we've got people from BIM, we've got project engineers, we've got health and safety doc controllers, project managers, project controls people. Every single part of project delivery, I think, is going to get transformed by this. We're not seeing commercial and finance people yet, but I think it will come. Of course, they're sat on a massive amount of data. Mm. And we've had QSs as well. And I think QSs can see the writing on the wall with their jobs and they've now got to start to really pivot and start to think about where their job goes in the future. Um, and in terms of sort of people, 
it just needs to be people with a passion, right? And see that they're going to get some new superpowers. And if they've got the superpowers, they're going to outperform their peers because they can see into the future. They've got a crystal ball. And if they're working with a yeah. project manager, the project manager is going to get really enthused by it all. So they outshine their peers um, and they get paid money as well, you know, big money, because these people are going to be really scarce once it starts to get going. Mm. So I think it's it's a really big and exciting career. And the problem is today, there's no such thing as a project data analyst career path. It doesn't exist. There's no competency frameworks, etc. So we're trying to fix that through the task force as well. But I think it's going to be a brand new job. I think it's going to be a really exciting one. It certainly does sound exciting. And I know Val wants to get straight into it. So Val, I'm going to hand over to you, mate. Yeah. Thanks, mate. And there's, there's, some, there's so many places we can take this, but on the point of vocation, and I love how you point out that passion is an important prospect to, or even the prerequisite to applying for these types of roles or learning these types of roles. And I think, you know, it's almost like giving people permission that they can actually go out. And the other interesting thing about these courses like data science is that a lot of the resources are free. A lot of the resources are online. There's no university degree really required. Um, it just requires a level of, of discipline and uh, maybe some some networks like the, the meetup that you're going to talk about later, um, having a group of, or, or a like-minded community where you can share ideas. Uh, I really like that it, it lifts the veil and there's a lot of sharing across projects and it gives it access to everyone. I think for project controls, people in particular, we've got a great transitional uh, or transversing skill that can move from kind of what we're doing today, which let's be honest, it's massaging Excel spreadsheets and, and, and making reports look good to a far more um, productive and, and a bigger contribution to projects in the future. I think th I just wanted to ask one more question around the, the guys that are stuck in IT. So for, I've got a few uh, friends and colleagues around, they're in the IT side of projects and they're also noticing a shift and a move towards you know um, automation and data science, machine learning, etc. And one of the challenges is there's also not a, a career pathway for let's say an IT, IT architect, where they're becoming less and less valuable as a higher uh, demand, because a lot of that stuff is done and predefined by the business end of the project. So what I mean by that is you know people like yourself might need to have a consultancy company come in on from the business end design an integrated system where that used to be the core role of an IT architect, you know, in the back end kind of thing. So is there, do you see career paths also that kind of uh, transverse or at least merge some of these old departments? Like you don't have an IT and a project controls department anymore. Maybe there's, there's something in the middle. What's your view on that? I'm seeing that now actually, Val. So mm. in terms of IT, sort of IT departments, they're getting in the way sometimes. So, it's like a policeman function as opposed to being an enabling function. Mm. And those functions which become enabling start to say, what can we do to supercharge all of this project data analytics? And once they do that and they say, right, if you're getting into app developments and you're getting into uh, dashboarding and you're getting into machine learning, we can set up the architecture to enable that. And as well, we can help you to get that are flying and start to implement it so they become part of this team so it's an integrated team between your project data analyst and those people at the front of a project and they're implementing stuff you've got people slightly behind them who's doing some of the data engineering in the back office work mm. 
So if they can look after the data engineering and just set up the Azure services or your Amazon Web Services or something like that, you're then working as an integrated team with an enabling function, not this policeman function. So I think it's down to the IT teams to sort of stand forward and say, right, now is the opportunity to bring myself more into the project space and the project guys to bring themselves more into the IT space and they'll probably meet in the middle somewhere. And I think that's where the magic's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I certainly see a bit of a trend. Um, I think it's globally as well that that these teams are kind of merging and and it, it's, it's just an interesting place to be because obviously the, with COVID happening as we speak all around the world, this is one of those roles that actually can be done remotely to, yeah. to most of the degree where a lot of the other jobs you're going to need to be involved. Obviously, there's still stakeholder engagement that's required. You still need to sit down with people, but that can be largely done online. So these courses are somewhat resilient in, in regards to anyone looking for, for new jobs and new roles. I think, you know, if we paste it, if we put our futurist hat on Martin, I think we'd all be agreeing, Dale, as well. You know, you're going to need some, in projects, you're going to need some level of whether it's data engineering or data science skill sets no matter what job you're in, what department you're in, whether you're in finance, whether you're in commercial, whether you're in procurement, whether you're in planning, you're going to need something. So um, what I do find though is, we've said this on the pod before, is education is lacking and, you know, that's not surprising. It, it, the, the educational system is is somewhat of a beast and so to move it around is quite quite slow. But you mentioned you, you guys are looking at something around the task force and and how to improve education around these these pathways, um, maybe we can talk about that. So in terms of task force, we've got a skills work stream. So that's led by Sue Simonite in uh, BA Systems. And what Sue's trying to do is to say, right, um, what's the terms of reference for a project data analytics um, expert? Is there such a thing? Or mm. is it just an extension of your job? Right. So if you are a dot controller or you're a project controls person, you're a project controls person who can do a bit of data analytics, a lot of data analytics, or you're a ninja. Right. Um, so they're trying to grapple with that at the moment. Mm. So once they start to do that, they can then start to define a competence framework and they can then start to define career pathways. So that's what they're working on at the moment. And if you want to get involved in that, just go to uh, pdataskforce.com and say, I want to be involved, and we'll pass you on and get you involved in it. So the six work streams, and that's one of the work streams, is research work stream one on uh, uh, solutions development, data quality, engagement, um, et cetera. So that's one part of it. And the second part of it is something we've been working on since 2017, is we say the the first part of this, a spectrum really is about understanding so that's what the meetup is all about so it's free uh it's twice a month and we just say to people come along to the meetup and we'll bring in some interesting speakers from around the world um and we'll start to get you thinking about project data analytics mm. and there was one guy uh two weeks ago who was talking about a graph databases from Hawley, and that was really sort of blows your brain up type stuff it's really transformational thinking i think that's the way we're going to go um, and a chap last night as well was talking about the interface between digital twins, which is the asset, and the way that the asset is going to be constructed, which is project delivery. And they don't quite sit well together at the moment. You know, there's mm-hmm. two separate parallel strands of work. We don't bring them together. So 
we're just trying to get people to think about it, open their eyes to the uh, sort of opportunity. And people said to us then, this is not enough, Martin. Uh, can we get into it and start to get some practical experience? So that's when we set the hack up. And we've got seven hacks now. We've got the eighth one on the 20th and 21st of March, which is a weekend. Uh, and it's open to all. We charge a tenner to get in, and that goes to Cancer Research, a bit goes to the Vatman and, and to Eventbrite. Um, and we only charge a fee because if we don't, we get a load of people say they're coming and don't come, and then you know we yeah. put logistics on, etc. So that gives people some practical experience, and it really inspires them and shows them the art of the possible. And they come away after that really fired up because they've seen what you can do in two days. So mm. one team took a load of data from Baker Hughes, 96,000 activities and schedules, and they said, right, and Baker Hughes said, we've got all these schedules with the estimates, and we're not going around the loop again and updating the estimate compared to actual because it's just too hard and we're all busy. So they keep on pushing these plans out with boilerplate estimates and um, things like progress curves. They've got 17 progress curves, and so these are different sorts of progress curves based upon the activity. So the first hack, we looked at those schedules, and within two days, they applied machine learning to it, and they said, this is what the estimate should be per activity, and we can tell you which activities have got the most variance on them, so which ones consistently change, and which departments they're in. So they did that in two days. Wow. And the second time round, they said, we're using all these progress curves and it's basically engineering judgment or expert judgment on what the progress curve should be, whether it's a straight line, an S-curve, whether it ramps at the start, etc. They've got 17 different progress curves, something like that. So they then said, so what's the difference between the plan and reality? And they did all of that and they said, we don't need 17, we only need about three. And they proved that through the data science and they modeled it in two days. So wow. if we can do this sort of stuff in two day sprints, right, with a team of six people. Just imagine what we can do when all of us get together and really start to push this. So off the yeah. back of that, people said to me, I don't just want to play about this on a weekend. I want to get into it. So we then got the apprenticeship going. And in the UK, what the apprenticeship is about. Uh, years ago, when I was a lad, you were 16 or 18, you'd leave school and go and do an apprenticeship instead of uh, going to college or something like that. But it's all changed now. So government said a few years ago is we need to start to drive up productivity in the UK. So we're going to tax companies uh, who's got a payroll bill of more than £3 million and we're going to tax you at 0.5%. And that money sits in your levy account. And if you don't spend it within two years, the taxman keeps it. So it's basically a pot of cash, which you've already paid into for training. And that training is available to all employees for substantial new learning. And a lot of people don't draw down on it because apprentices have got a, a stigma to them. You know, it's 18-year-olds, etc. But I think that's starting to change and they start to see it's an opportunity to tap into some funding that's already paid. So it's basically free training and they can use that to upskill. So we've got 75 people on it now from loads of different companies. Highways England's on it. You know, we've got Gleeds, uh, Sir Robert McAlpine, Mace, loads of, got loads of different companies from loads of different sectors. And what we're finding now is 
it started to change their role. So I did a progress review with this lady last week, and she's a document controller. And I said to her, you know, you're coming to the end of your apprenticeship now, you'll be graduating in around May time. Has it changed your job? And she said, yeah, it's changed my job 100%. Now I've got a very, very different job now because I don't need to do all the dull and dirty work that I used to do before because I've now automated the hell out of that. Yes. And now start to add a lot more value in my job and I'm loving it. Mm. And before I thought I'd got a career for the next sort of three or four years because I thought I'd be um, sort of replaced by a bot. And now I've got a career for uh, 15 years plus. And it's a really interesting, fascinating career. And it's something I'm good at. So that was really great, you know, see somebody flying as a consequence of it. It's brilliant. Yeah, that's fantastic. And a credit to you, Martin, and your teams. Um, This is the kind of things, Dale, this is the kind of things we love to get behind because, um, you know, I I know it took so long, but then, you know, the great ideas are always the ones you look in hindsight and go, oh, yeah, that was so simple. Why don't we do that on all projects? But but this idea of this hackathon and, and the example you gave just then, I mean, we'd love to set up something like that in Australia as well. This is something that could be global. It should be yeah. something that is is kind of mandated as part of, uh, I guess, the progression and the development of the people and projects because it is really hard. And there, I think you're right as well around the stigma of apprentices as well. I think that is changing too. Um, but young people have so much to offer in this smart space. Um, one, they innately have this relationship with technology that you know our generations probably never will have. We get it. But for us to translate it, it's a bit. It takes a bit longer. Um, yeah. I'm not offending anyone out there. I hope. But <laughs> when these young kids come in, um, and we had some grads uh, last year on a on a on a technical program very similar, what I learned from them was phenomenal. In a few days, they were able to explain to me a project that no one else on the team could, and uh, that's phenomenal. Given that they're not really into the content, I find that with data scientists and data engineers, content is almost irrelevant. I say almost because it never really is, but but the framework and what you're trying to ask of it is far, far more important. And and I find that a really valuable asset uh, to to any project. So it's great that, that they're listening and you've got so many people behind you. So this is obviously not just a, a little hobby. This is actually a community and a, and a bit of a movement. Is that right, Martin? Yeah, I think it's going to get really big. You know, I think we just started, actually. You know, I think mm. that once it goes, it's going to really start to snowball. And I probably saw that last quarter last year. And I think that's because we've now got a task force and that's starting to bring some senior level attention to it. Mm. Um, so I think it is starting to move now at last. You know, and it's taken me a lot of effort to get to this point. And um, the business has been close to the edge a few times, right? We thought we were going to be gone. Um it's about market making as well. You know, there's no market for project data analytics. We've had to create the market. Uh, so we've had to show people the light, uh, show people the, the art of the possible. And I'm seeing companies start to spin up now and they're doing some great stuff in things like apps uh, and solution development. Now, for me, I'm trying to disrupt that as well. Right? <laughs> so you probably see I am quite a disruptor. So I'm trying to say... Everybody wants to do dashboards. So don't sell dashboards because we can knock them up in a weekend. So they've got a very little commercial volume. So instead of a thousand companies, each working on their separate dashboards, let's all start to pull those dashboards and you can configure them for your own needs, but let's start to configure them 
um, with a data model at the back, which we can uh, democratize. If we can do that, and each company puts in a dashboard each, we'll go a thousand times quicker, right? So if we do that for automation, we do it for machine learning, etc. we go a thousand times quicker. And a lot of this is not a commercial edge. It's, it's really easy to do. It just needs a lot of horsepower to do it. So mm. let's all yeah. bring that horsepower together. It means we can do projects more cost-effectively. So we drive down the cost of the project. We make them more investable. So we'll do more projects. Everybody's margin is protected. We'll just do more of them. So it's great for everybody. Yeah. 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 And we underpin that with a data trust as well. You know, and, and I think that's a separate conversation. Well, I think I think you're right. I think there's um, you know, there's this, and it's not utopian to think that this is unachievable because there is a way to do it. We just have to get past a few of the commercial hurdles, some safety hurdles in terms of trust of data, because uh, we've been talking about this data and anonymity, where um, you know, wouldn't it be great for a sector where you know we're not protecting this IP as much, where we're stripping out obviously sensitive information, but we we opened freedom of information as you mentioned earlier that. We could access, you know, sector-related information to benchmark, and everyone could access that information. Um, here in Australia, the Victorian government and New South Wales government are doing something similar, slowly, uh, so that you know, when we, when, when private companies tender, they can take this information um, and provide one a better, a better uh, and a more competitive offer, uh, and two a far more accurate scope of work, which tends to be the problem with with most projects when they go from bid to project phase. Yeah. The bid phase tends to be like it starts off with good intentions and Dale and I have talked about this and then you have this Baphos phase where it's best and final offer and someone comes in and just strips everything out um, and lowballs the costs and does all these things to get the, the bid across but then that project's unfeasible straight from the cuff um, and no one knows until after the fact. So there's this, this muddied water pit uh, from phase transition and I think what you're mentioning there and having access to data so we can make informed decisions is obviously the intent of having data scientists and project data analytics people on your team. Um, I just wanted to mention that, but I think Martin, we want hundred percent behind you. We love disruptors. They're our favorite people. Um, I'll pass on to Dale for, for another question. Yeah, no, that fascinating, fascinating. Vald, I just want to comment. You, you touched on, you know, you hope you haven't offended anyone. I don't think we've ever had a pod where we didn't offend anyone. So um, <laughs> we offend people all the time on every pod. Um, so it's probably a given. But um, uh, it's fascinating, Martin. You you you, you touched briefly on, um, and, and you also mentioned before we record, about reinventing project controls and, and how that will evolve in the next few years. And I was just actually just thinking about the word, the label project controls, and it feels quite limiting within self. And maybe it's that control word. And mm. maybe, you know, it, it maybe the role won't exist that is today, but maybe even the, the title will change. I wonder if we could explore a little bit your vision of if you took your crystal ball you've got and looked into the future in a few years' time, what would the role of the modern day or current day uh, project controller look like? in a few years to come with everything we're doing in the space. Um, because it's really, really intriguing. There's, there's, there's this growing demand for project controls people, yet I think industry at large doesn't fully appreciate what project controls is. And now we're talking about it evolving. Um, it, it's, it's, and we talk about complicated and complexity as well, which we'll get into. Um, but I, I just want to get your view on, on just 
project control specifically and how that will change? So from my viewpoint, right, this big project I worked on, um, it was in Aldermaston, and uh, we were running various plans because we were trying to put the project through um, and it was going over budget. And the problem was we were putting changes through, but the changes couldn't be approved because they take a long time to get through the regulator, et cetera. So the changes were being accepted by the board. So they were in my plan, but they weren't in the approved plan. So you then got to run multiple versions of a plan, right? So your project controls team then is just trying to keep external people satisfied about what's going on, right? So you've got a plan. Now, in reality, there was so much complexity in that plan in terms of emergence that we were planning stuff and spending every day replanning it because of emergence. So the project controls function for me was just keeping the regulator off my back. It wasn't really helping me to yeah. plan the project and get around this complexity. I wanted somebody with a crystal ball that was going to help me through a lot of the problems I've got. And I didn't have that person. So I would have traded probably 60% of my project controls team for one project data analyst who can get into that data and look at the other projects that were struggling on site. And I can take all of that data then and say, this is what we can expect. So I know that things, when they're going through the regulator, are going to take three times longer. I know there's a bottleneck through this certain person on site. I know that this is going to go pear-shaped. I now start to predict it in my plan so I can now start to engage with it and make it better. So what my boss said to me, he said, Martin, I've brought you in to change this project. The cost is going up, and I want you to bring it back down again. And I said, well, you've had a few people to try this. And the line is being fixed. I've looked back at the line. The line is fixed. What magic source would you like me to apply <laughs> to I reverse that trend? Yeah. And he said, well, that's why we brought you in. I said, no, but something systematically needs to change. You can't just bring me in and say, fix it all, Martin, without these appropriate tools. So for me, that really set me off. That's why we need this data science, because it was obvious from all these other projects on site there were patterns in those delays. And a lot of them were self-harming as well, right? Um, so so that's what set me off on this journey, really, was saying, it, no, we need to reinvent project controls uh, completely. And it's not a control function. It shouldn't be a control function. It should be a forecasting and crystal balling function, right? Hmm. You can't control a complex project, right, because it's emergent. If it's a simple or clear project, it is sort of controllable. But if it's complex and it's got emergence in it, you've got to go with that emergence and shape it and direct it and experiment. And I think that's the problem uh, with the context of project controls. And I experienced exactly that problem in your fight typhoon as well. And I got an Italian boss at the time, and he says, Martin, you Brits are spending all your time planning. You just plan, 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 plan. And you've got to keep on updating the plan. You should be managing this project by your seat of your pants. And I laughed at it and thought, you know, Italian people, they're just sort of blagging this uh, project management stuff. But it, it stuck with me for 20 years. And there's something in that, in that in an emergent situation, you can't plan your way out of it, right? Otherwise, you spend all your life just updating the P6 schedule. 
you've got to do some experimentation. That's what Dave Snowden's Kinefin is all about, is you've got to try some things and see where it goes. And once you bottom out that uncertainty and that emergence, that's when you can move it into complicated and that's when you plan your way out of it. So for me, I just don't think we're smart enough about applying this, this project controls methodology. And in the UK as well, we've got a project controls apprenticeship. It's a level three. And the one I'm doing is a level four and a degree is level six and a master's is level seven. So that's where it sort of sits. So it's a foundation degree. And the project controls apprenticeship is all about learning work breakdown structures, um, bog standard stuff you'd expect for project controls. If you Google project controls definition, right, the first thing that comes up is project controls online. And it talks about um, a data management. It talks about um, a data integrity and starting to merge data together and using data to predict future outcomes. We don't teach people that on the project controls apprenticeship. <laughs> so what is this project controls thing all about? It's, it's 20, mm. 30 years out of date. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, agreed. And it's fascinating because, like as we say, you know, industry at large is 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 confused about what it is. Um, and then there's this issue of attracting talent that we spoke about. Um, and and hopefully through mediums like the podcast and, and other things that you know yourselves and, and others in the industry are doing, we'll start to attract and say, actually, that you know, it, it can be a a sexy thing to do, project controls or whatever you want to call it going forward. Um, it's actually something we spoke about on our last pod and we were stumped. We're like, how do we make it sexy? And it is really difficult if you if you go back to what you say is taught in the apprenticeship, how do you make a WBS sexy? How do you yeah. make change control sexy? You don't, right? But if all of a sudden you go, well, actually, I can arm you with a crystal ball and you can help predict how things are going to happen based on the past, well, I think that opens a whole new world. Um but I did also want to touch on this notion that, you know, you, you talk about definitions and I think, you know, the APM and, and a lot of others define a project as a unique endeavor. So then some might ask, if every project is a unique endeavor, how, how then can we possibly use history to predict a unique endeavor? What do you say to that? So um, everything you buy is different, right? So even if you're buying exactly the same thing twice, it's still different because it's got a time phase component to it. So it, it's different when you're buying it, you know, one's bought outside of COVID, one's bought in COVID. So even the instance of what you're buying is different. So everything you buy is different by nature. But the thing is, all the functional discipline that goes around it is extremely similar, Right. So the way you go and do your requirements engineering, the way you go and, and design something, the way you do your integration and your commissioning, all that sort of stuff, has got a huge amount of similarity. The way you write contracts, the way you manage compensation events, there's a huge amount of patterns in that data, which is a lot of similarity. And it's very difficult to pull that similarity out for human beings, because if you're working on big projects, you probably only worked on five or six in your life right big big projects if you're lucky you've worked on 20 right um so you've got 20 years worth i mean 20 projects worth of experience if we think about 
a data bank in terms of a data trust, it's going to have a potentially tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of projects worth of experience. So you just can't compete. You can't compete with that data set. So if it's pulling it all out at a functional level or a work breakdown structure level, so it's just a case of segmenting the data, that's when you pull the patterns out. The thing you're buying is almost immaterial. As long as you don't compare, for instance, uh, buying an aircraft with a transformation project in financial services, you know, it just won't work. So there needs to be a degree of similarity between them at a functional level. Yeah, no, no, no great points. Um, I, I, I'm just wondering then with, with all of that data at hand, how do you then also compensate or maybe not compensate, maybe compensate is not the right word, but how do you take into account capability factors then? Um, because not only are projects then unique and then they will have some similarities, but then does the same theory then apply to resources, human resources? So is the, you know, the engineer from one organization or industry or project the same or similar to the next? Um, is that something that we can build into um, data and, and predicting um, the, the future success of projects? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, so if you think about risk, right, um, and we don't do this today, we don't do this with risk, we just look forward with risk, we don't look back. Yeah. So if we start to look back and we say, right, Dale, you've got your risk register and Val's got a risk register as well. I'll go through that risk register and I'll see if you've been right most of the time. Who is most right? Now, if you've got a load of issues coming straight in and not going through your risk register, it means you're asleep on the job. Yeah. If things are progressing through your risk register, you've got your risk windows and your alerts in your risk windows, then you're probably doing a really good job. If you're describing a risk, are you describing a risk in a way that is professional? And I can measure that because I can take a thousand risks from loads of risk registers, uh, get a panel who sat around and say, these are well-described risks and these are rubbish risks. That is now my training data set. So I can now assess all future risks against that training data set for risks that are well-described, mm. well-articulated. I can then go in and see if you're updating those on a regular basis and you're doing that by putting a full stop in or you're doing it through some material updates. I can then say um, what risk would we expect to see at that st stage of a project. So as an assurer, I can come in and say, Dale, you're missing 40% of these risks that I would expect to see at this stage in the project because I've got my magic data set over here. I'm not showing it to you because you'll just get lazy then you just copy what the computer's told you and you've missed all these big risks out. Why is that? All right. So it then starts to inspire people to really get on top of the game. Mm. So I've then got a fantasy football league performance of everybody in my team because I can do the same for risk for schedules. So you're right most of the time. If you've got your logic right, if you've got the shortest path. Um, every single part of your project, you can do the same thing. And that, yeah, that's great. The hood on project performance, individualized project performance. And from an engineer, for instance, if you're a designer, you can say, what's the number of RFIs and TQs that's raised against your design? Right? And the amount of errors they've picked up, the amount of problems they've had, the efficiency of the design, etc. So it's just it's just making sure you break out the user stories and the problem statements you're trying to resolve and the user data to solve it. 
And a lot of this at the moment is white space, right? Nobody's doing it. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, there's so much to go after, right? It is just a world of opportunity. It's phenomenal. Really exciting. No, I agree. I agree. It's a, it's a really exciting space. Um, I'm going to let Val jump in because I know he's he's burning to go. Go on, Val. No, I'm good. I, I, I agree with you. I think there's there's an element because obviously all you were explaining there was that's machines learning you know you train the machine to look for the exceptions and 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 then you're plotting i think there's to, to be to be honest i think there is some resistance to do that i i think it's you know it's saving face more than anything else um and humans being humans wanting to resist the change of being on a league's table but it makes sense um you know using as particularly like natural language processing where now we can get into not just the data analytics of the project performance, like the structured metrics that you were talking about with risk, or not risk, but, um, you know, scheduling and, and milestones and all that kind of thing. But we can also look at the narrative, the story that goes with it. So your project managers and your executives are doing monthly reviews and they, re- they write these lovely essays that say, you know, I spent more than I planned and that's it. And then <laughs> next month, uh, I spent more again and I'm a little bit behind uh, than I plan to be. Uh, I plan to catch up next month. And then the next month you get the same thing again. I know we're all smiling and nodding because this is, this is normal for projects. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and we just, we just avoid the conversation where I think machine learning for a particular point around the narrative as well, could be trained and maybe you're doing some of this to articulate what a good, what a good, uh, let's say treatment. Let's talk about risk. If it's a good mitigation, if we think that it's it, it could alleviate the problem or the risk, uh, or is it a narrative that is substantial or suffice to explain the performance of the project? Are we getting to a point, at least in maybe the task force or or, or offline, that you think we're potentially getting to a point where we can measure the narratives and the decision effectiveness of our execs and project managers? I think people's getting close to that now. And yeah. a really good guy on this is a chap who lives down the road from you, Val, in, in Sydney. Um, hey. His name's Kelvin, uh, uh, Kelvin McGrath. So I don't know if you spoke to him yet, but he runs a company called yeah. A Meeting Quality. And he's been across to the UK and uh, is a lovely chap. And he really gets it. And he's starting off by talking about the quality of a meeting. Right? So if you set out on a meeting, did you achieve your outcomes? And then you start to think about it and start to think, um, if I start to ask people what they thought about your performance in that meeting, um, you start to get some feedback, individualized sort of feedback. And then you build a graph sort of model out and you can find out the disruptors in that meeting, the person who's who's been a bit of a sort of heat sink in that meeting and just stopping the meeting from getting progress. So you can identify them because you're now getting everybody else's view on that person. And then he took it a step further. And then he says, I'm going to do a little sample, a 45-second app, every Monday morning on what the team's feeling about certain parts of the project. And you can ask the project engineers, the project managers, the admin, whatever, and you ask the project directors and the board. And if you start to get divergence over time, right, then you can start to see that you've lost your team. And then he says, um, Mm. I've looked at the data and he says, I can see this team getting more and more burnt out because um, uh, 
the sentiment's dropping, the sentiment's dropping in all the reports and a lot of the emails, the sentiment, you know, is people getting more and more angry, et cetera. And then it changed and everybody got happy. And he said, what's the reason for that? And I was scratching my head and thinking, well, they brought in some superstar who was going to turn the project around. And he said, no, they'd all given up, right? <laughs> they'd accepted that the project was now a basket case and there's no point working really, really hard on it. Wow. And he, he picked all of that up from a 45-second app once a week. Wow. All right? Wow. Really cool. Wow, that's powerful. That's very yeah. cool. I think yeah. the... um. You know, the value of, of we, Dale and I used to do this. When you go into a meeting, and you know this, Martin, as well, when you go into a meeting and there's 15 people in a room and you do, you do a quick head count and you're like, all right, well, that guy's 100 hour, that guy's 150. You work out how expensive these meetings are and then, and then you can, you could, and I think machines are a lot better at this, effectively work out how effective that meeting was, the, the morale and the engagement of that meeting from a cultural perspective as well, and and the and the effective decisions that were made and whether that had any actual impact on the project versus the amount it costs us to have a meeting for three hours about the project, um, which is usually not very effective or productive anyway. Is that would you see machine learning being a, a, an asset in that field as well? Yeah, we, we talked about that. The problem is though, you know, if we start to go down this and we start to get the micro performance like that, it's a bit like the risk manager. You know, if you think Big Brother's always watching you. Yeah. Are you just going to play it safe all the time? So mm. I give an example, right? As a chart and engineer, if I go and design something and it it goes pear-shaped and I kill somebody, uh, I go to jail for a professional negligence. If I'm a chartered project manager and I cock something up, then I'll probably get a slap on the wrist and I might lose my job and I'll get another one in about mm. three weeks' time. So the consequences are not that great. If you've been looking at Bent Fluvia's post recently he's been saying that in muskrat falls i think it is maybe a few other projects there's people who's now been accused of lying right so i think he calls it a strategic misrepresentation <laughs> but basically have you overegged the business case have you not been telling the truth about the way the project's been going so i think we're going to get to a situation in the next couple of years where there's going to be a professional negligence claims against people if they've been seen to be cooking the books, right? So not telling the truth on projects. Yeah. yeah. And there are people who do that, right? I've worked for them. There are people who say, well, you can't let that out yet. Yeah. You've got yeah, to wait I think um... before you let that out. And it's like, no, we should do it now. And no, no, we're not ready yet because you don't know that that thing is going to happen. And it's, well, boss, I'm 95% certain. And yeah, you know, but, it's not come off yet, so let's just keep it back. And that person's going to move on in like a month's time, so it's not on his watch. You know, it's just yeah. It's, yeah that, it's there's wrong. some bits around incentive, isn't it? Yeah, it is wrong. It it does happen, and this group thing happens, and then everyone kind of goes along with it um, just to keep the harmony, and they don't want to make waves. And we we talked about a few times on the pod where you know moral leadership is required in these big projects because. You know, it's unfeasible to anyone. It's unrealistic to anyone in the public to see a project blow out. Um, you know, it's been going fine for so long, and then right near the end, it blows out for another five years, and it's another ten billion dollars. It's like, well, surely there was some telltale signs along yeah. the way that someone just didn't didn't want to look at. And uh, yeah, there's there's definitely ways we could probably incentivize executives better than just bonuses. Um, you know, that that are related to performance, because then they're always going to um, make those books look good. I mean, yeah. you know, we're, we're carrot and stick 
type of people. We we like reward. We don't like punishment. And so as long as we keep rewarding really kind of ordinary um, metrics or really binary metrics, we're going to get those same behaviors. I think it'd be great. I mean, we talked to Colin D. Ellis, who's a, he's written a book on culture called Culture Fix, and he, he kind of talked about this as well. We need to somehow link and incentivize um, execs to manage culture because it seems to me that having things like these engagement, these uh, these project hacks and having interesting kind of career pathway crossovers and, you know, being open and honest about truth and transparency would be an asset to to projects, either if you're on the client or the contractor side. Is that is that how you see that as well? Spot on, yeah. I think that that's we just need to change the game. And I think it's going to change anyway, because you can bring somebody like me now and I can do a forensic a data analysis on what's gone on and you can almost see the inflection point and you can go back through all the data and all the reporting and see which part of the organisation has been manipulating that data or just holding it back, etc. So I think mm. we are going to change the game because of these capabilities we've now got to see the patterns in the data and see when the inflection points were. So I, th- I think yeah. the culture is going to change as a product of the capability we've got to do the assurance activity better. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think agree. All the culture that goes with it and and just rethinking the way that we manage projects um, and be proud of what we do and not trying to just push stuff through because we've got a gig that's going to go on for the next five years. You know, it's it's, it's wrong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And if I could, I could switch gears. I, I'd love to get into the the detail of of machine learning because I, I, I always take it for granted that my level of knowledge isn't that wide. And I imagine Martin, you get a lot of people, and you forget that you're when you're exposed to these things, you you have different language and you speak different acronyms. And but I think for those who are listening that are kind of new to machine learning and how it could be applied in their business or their projects, I think it'd be great to just kind of lift the veil a little bit um, in a real kind of easy way to understand but from your perspective um, how do you describe machine learning to those that are pretty novel or novice to the to the subject so i think for me it is it's looking for patterns in data right so um there's two different parts to machine learning the first part is that if you can take a lot of data and you start to look for clustering in that data the machine is scrubbing through that data and looking for the patterns so that's the first thing and the second thing is if you can start to train those algorithms then so if you Mm. say this is um a supervised learning set because i can go in and train the model that's when you can start to get those uh, things like the risk management insights for instance so there's various definitions about machine learning and and i can't recite them right my brain's too full of other stuff over (laughs) years now um uh, it's for me, it's just about pulling patterns out of data, you know, and being able to use all of that experience in that data set so you get better and better patterns. And the more data you've got, the more precise you can be about those patterns in the data. Yeah. And then it's about it's about this reinforcement learning, uh, tr- treating the machine um, through these algorithms or rules and conditions so that it can do the hard work for you. It's about heavy lifting, really, and it's not about yeah. replacing roles because I think there's a stigma around machine learning is going to take all our roles and AI is going to take over and we're, we're all going to be stuck with, with no jobs. And that's just such not a good myth to, to populate. But, but now, do you hear that a lot? So it's moving up the value chain. I think that project controls people need to say, right, yeah. I'm going to stop doing all the grunt, just reporting stuff, 
and I'm now starting to get into predicting stuff where I can make sure I'm saving money every day because I keep bringing the schedule back in. I'm not just going, identifying these massive fires all the time. They mm. should be finding these little embers. And you mentioned reinforcement learning, and I think reinforcement learning is going to come. I think it's probably five or ten years away until we start to come um, and, and, and really start to be part of project delivery. But what reinforcement learning does is it's saying, right, um, if I'm playing chess, for instance, it's looking at the future moves that you can make and it's looking at the pain versus the gain of each of those moves. And then it's plotting various moves ahead and it can run loads of scenarios by looking at all those future moves and work, working out which one's got the biggest reward. So it's called the reward function versus the number of steps that you do. Mm. So if you think in project delivery in due course, you'd run millions of scenarios across all these different permutations of things you could do. So the project controls professionals will be shaping those scenarios and putting some human judgment on the top of them. Now that's when, you know, you really earn your money. Now that'll be top end stuff that, and you get paid a lot of money to do that. Yeah. Well, I think you're going to have these, these super powered project controls people who's just going to be in a different breed to everybody else. Can we wear a cape when we do that? You can do it. <laughs> yes. Super Dale. I, I think you're right. I think there's it's so much to look forward to and there is so much um, space. Like you, you could be, I think even the roles themselves will evolve and you'll have specializations within data science and data engineering and et cetera. And, it, you, you know, the, I, I don't. I just don't think it's going to stop. And once we get, like you said, once we get to that point where machines are really, you know, prescribing the future, um, it's going to be a very exciting uh, place to be. Because all of a sudden, I mean, I play this scenario with Dale. You know, imagine if we had like a an Echo or an Alexa in the, you know, in the meeting room, and you know, she or it was part of the conversation, recorded the the conversation, could recite information on, you know, in an instant. That retrieve and recall function was there. Could run scenarios while we're talking and plot them in instant time. I mean, that's that's where we're kind of going with this stuff, and it's it's a really exciting place to be yeah, because you're not you're not driving anymore. You're you're just kind of saying it's more like being in a cab than it is driving anywhere. You're like, I want to go here, and yeah. uh, and then you just you know you do what you want. You sit back and look at the dashboard. Um, I think that's a really exciting part. I just wanted to. I'll ask you one more thing before I pass on to Dale. One more thing, Martin, because you're so valuable to the people out there listening. I know they want to hear everything. Uh, for me, it's about the journey as well for data. And I find that a lot of people focus on the dashboards, like you said, the, the, the visualization of it, which is kind of like the tick at the end. I, I, I kind of liken it to painting, you know, where painting's 90% prep and then there's there's 10% actual painting. Uh, you've got to sand, you've got to get everything sorted out, you've got to tape, you know. Um, but with with data, I think, you know, the simple process that I had in my head, and I've got one up here that I, I use all the time when I'm talking to clients at a basic level, is define the goal, get the data, clean the data, enrich the data, and then you find insights and you visualize, and then you might then decide or at least be ready for deploying machine learning in the future. And you kind of stagger it out in that that format. Is that, do you have a simple model like that that you follow as well? 
Um, it's all down to maturity of the organisation. So I see organisations mm. now just piling into Power BI, right, and saying, let's have dashboards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they don't understand so what, right? They just do a pretty thing. They always put a map on it because the map looks beautiful. And you say, why are you put a map on it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know where my offices are. Why have you put a map on my dashboard? Because you're and here. The person will say, well, it looks cool though, doesn't it? Then it look cooler when I got a map on my dashboard. Really? Now that person gets a dashboard and somebody else says, well, I want mine changed. And then you have another version of it. And you finish up with like founder dashboards. Yeah. And then it's somebody's job to keep them all maintained and all the data streams that go with it, et cetera. And I'm finding now the mature sort of organizations are now saying, I've got 2,000 dashboards. I can't sort of maintain those dashboards. So what they're now mm. saying is, is let's have role-based dashboards, right? So if you're the finance director, you see this and you get to steer it. But don't say, I want to see this box on it. I want to see this. I want to see that. Get your problem statement sorted out. Get your yeah. use case sorted out on, on why you want to see it and for what end. Mm. And then I think there's a case of, right, you finish up all these dashboards with loads of dials and loads of bars and what have you. And then you finish up just with um, a three-mile line and sort of a dashboard panel with all these flashing lights and you can't see what's flashing because, you know, everything's going at once and you finish up with a big mushroom cloud, right? And that's where we're going to finish up is that when everything starts to go at the same time, you're just overwhelmed by your dashboard. So what we need yeah. through the predictive analytics is to give you um, a situation-based uh, constraints on those dashboards. So it's like your car. If your car's between a certain temperature band, you don't worry about it. If it's outside of that temperature band, it'll say to you, right, you're now starting to overheat. I need to do this thing. I need to do that. And your car would then do it for you. You know, it would um, flash up a warning and the engine management system would go and do something as a consequence. And that's what we need to be doing is saying we've now got control bands and we can define those control bands based upon the machine learning of what's gone before. So you say, if you're outside of that tolerance band, this is my recommended action to you, or I'm going to present six actions to you, and it's down to your project controls function then to say, right, I've got to look at the consequence of each of these six actions. Yeah? yeah so I think on. we need to blow up dashboards. You know, I think we're going in the wrong direction on it, and I've been saying that for the last, last three years, very few people's listening, but um, yeah, I think that's going to change. You know, it's got to change. I agree. I think it's part of that. Yeah, sorry to jump in there. I think I think you're right. It that um, you know you create. We, we it was a great it was a great marketing effort to bring people on the data journey, and now we've created this monster. And I guess it's part of that maturity, isn't it? That okay, well now we know dashboards aren't the end state. They're they're just they're nice to have, um, uh, unless they're telling us by exception things that are urgent that need to be flagged. Then then what else you know? And then you move on to machine learning as the next step. So. Yeah, it's exciting. It's very exciting. It is. It is exciting. And, you know, if I, if I strip it back, and even before sort of data analytics and visualization, I think it just stems back to sometimes people don't know what they want. Yeah. You, you actually ask them to, def as you said, what's the, you know, what is defined the problem saying? What are you actually looking for? They don't actually really know. And so then it becomes incumbent on us as the controls professionals to say, well, here is valuable data. This, this is what it's telling you. 
And yeah. it's, I think it's that art we've spoken about where you'll never quite get rid of the human element to, to, to actually tell the story and convert that into something tangible and valuable to the organizational business or the role, um, which, which you, you know, um, sort of reporting to, so to speak. But I just want to touch on lastly, Martin, um, you mentioned Power BI and a few other tools. Are there any specific tools that you sort of, um, recommend people go to or is it sort of is, is your view more sort of tool agnostic where it's more about data science as a collective and getting into the space so it's for me there's three approaches right there's a tool strategy so you can go and buy p6 you can go and buy microsoft power apps power bi tableau whatever right and some people get vendor locking then because you're wedded to that tool and you can't get out of it yeah. um mm. and there's a platform approach so you can use the Oracle platform, you can use Procure or those sort of things. And then they lock you in because they put all your data in their cloud and then you're locked in. Or there's a third approach, which is is a data-driven approach. And for me, your data is a codification of all of your hard-won experience that's cost you a fortune to acquire, right? <laughs> so why go and stick that in somebody else's cloud? And then mm. some people will say, right, I've got access to that data now because it's a small print on page 600 of your contract for your piece of software. I can now use that to do some sort of machine learning for loads of other things, and, and I'll reflect that back to somebody else. And you don't know what's going on with your data, right? So for me, I'd flip it around completely and say, I'm tool agnostic. I'll just take the best in the market. And what I'm going to do instead is look at all these use cases, which are really important to me, and then configure it and keep on configure it and just I use the Microsoft platform because a lot of people's already paid for that and there's functionality yeah. on there that you're already paying for and go and sort of negotiate some implementation discounts from Microsoft and take it that way. And then I think you can bolt on some of the top end capabilities from NPLAN and nodes and links and stuff like that. But I think where we're going to end up personally, um, SQL databases are all about siloed data and you connect them with a join table and that's really clunky and very difficult to maintain. I think where we're going to end up in is the world of graph databases. And those are the things that sit at the back of Amazon and eBay and things like that. And that's like the Facebook relationships. So you can codify the relationships between different people. And you want to know the relationship between your schedule and your risk, your schedule and your resource, your schedule and the weather, etc. It's all of those relationships, which are probably more important than the data itself. Because in projects, we don't have a billion data points you know it's not like in amazon your risk register's probably got 100 things in it that's updated once a month so the data volumes are quite low so by uh, triangulating to other data sets that's when you get your insights and that's when it gets really really cool so what we're trying to do through the task force is we're trying to say you know back to your point about understanding this data model is if we can take a data model and codify it. So back to this RFI problem, we're just solving this today. Right? We've been talking about it with the work stream today is if we can break that down into say 20 user stories that go with it, those user stories are going to apply to every company everywhere, right? You're all trying to get the same thing out of your RFIs. So if we can then say, what solutions do we need to solve those user stories? Well, we can then say, what data do we need to put in the solution to solve the user stories? So you can now do a gap analysis and say, are we collecting the right data today 
uh, to answer the questions that we want to answer in the future. And then you can start to invest in fixing that data. And the companies who are going to outperform are not those companies who can do all the Power BI and all the, the Power Apps and things like that. It's the companies who's really going to get a top of their data pipelines and really start to leverage their hard-won experience and get the insights out of it. So if you've aligned all of that data with your use cases and your problem statements, that's when you'll outperform. And I don't see many people thinking like that yet, but I think it's going to come. Wow. Wow. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the business leaders or not just business leaders, but professionals listening to that will really, you know, sit up and think um, just, just on that last bit that you mentioned. Um, there, there's so many other areas we could go into Val, um, but I do want to get into a special part of the podcast, Mr. Paver. Um, this section is a bit of fun. Uh, it's called Defend the Indefensible. Um, and for this, I'll hand over to Martin Curriston, who's in the background there. So Martin, if, you, if you're available uh, and willing, please can you sort of pop your video on there um, and explain to Mr. Paver how it works? Yeah, thanks, Dale. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of fun for season three, something, um, something new. So it's um, it's where we challenge our guests to defend a ridiculous statement for 30 seconds. It's, it's just a bit of fun. It's inspired by some of the, the brilliantly ridiculous things we've all kind of heard over the over the years. So um, so if you're willing, if you're keen, um, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Okay, so... You have 30 seconds to defend the following statement. I don't need more analytics. I have my weekly RAG status report. Discuss. It's all about experience. You know, I've been around for 30 years. I've got bags of experience. These uh, status reports are all based around out-of-date data anyway. I don't trust the data. It takes me six months to get the data because it goes through all the hierarchy and it gets sort of manipulated all the way up. So... Why do I need all this data? It's a waste of time. You know, I've been working as a project manager. I've got some really good guys in my team. I don't need any of this stuff. I've been really experienced. Is that 30 seconds? Absolutely spot on. Spot on 30 seconds. Brilliant. Well done. We, we almost believed it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that all the time. I get that all the time. Oh, yeah. I was just about to say, it sounds like something you've heard over and over and over. So, um, and yeah, I, I'm sure we've all heard very similar things. You know, we've, we've, we all, we all come from the control space and you produce something and you hear statements like that. You hear statements like that's just academic. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not something that, um, we should tolerate going forward. Uh, absolutely. But thank you for being such a good sport, um, Martin. Yeah, my um, pleasure. No, it's been really good fun. I've enjoyed it, chaps. No, absolutely. We, we've enjoyed your time. And, you know, with a pace at which um, everything's developing, um, you know, we'd love to have you back to see how things are progressing on, on a future pod. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, maybe maybe sooner rather than later, like I say, with a pace at which things are going. And, and of course, we'd love to be involved as well in any way, shape and form to help progress the space as well. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that too. But just as we head towards the end of the pod, were there any final thoughts that you wanted to leave the listeners with? I think it's to say, you know, the world's changing and you can either say these bots are going to go and take my job off me and and life's not fair. Or you say the world's changing and I need to engage with it and prepare for it. And if I do it right, I'm going to have a really cool job. Right? It's a cool job where I've got a crystal ball with a load of superpowers and I will outperform my peers and get paid 
a load of money. All right. So mm. it's really exciting. Really exciting. Let's yeah. rise to the challenge and go and break some stuff. I think it's cool. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. If, if you know, if you heard that, you would, why wouldn't you want to get into the space? So thank you. Val, any final thoughts from you? Nah, Martin, it's been great to have you on the pod. Uh, we need to do something like this down in Australia. We don't have any kind of hackathon in this project data analytics space. So let's have a chat about that. But also, um, I think you said something like transformation analytics was a great term that you mentioned before. I think that's that's where we're at. It's transformational data analytics kind of roles that are attractive. And I'm excited as much as you are. I'm a bit of a futurist as well. Data science and business psychology are two major uh, emergent, I guess not even emergent anymore, but they're, they're two main um figures in the new projects that we work on and uh hopefully hopefully the execs are listening to this and uh and if they want to get in touch with you we'll leave your details um at the end of this pod but thanks for your time mate okay thanks a lot chaps appreciate it yeah brilliant brilliant and uh, as val was saying earlier thanks again uh, mr martin paver it's you you've been a great sport and you've been it's been so great to pick your mind and, and your brains and your insight into everything in the space and it is a really really exciting space and as you've alluded to we've only sort of just sort of the tip of the iceberg so uh folks that is all we have time for on this episode but it doesn't have to stop here support our charities and access blogs at projectchatterpodcast.com don't forget to hit subscribe on our youtube channel and your podcast player so you don't miss the next one a massive massive thank you to mr martin paver and thank you all for listening Till next time we say stay safe be disruptive and have fun doing it from me val and martin it's bye for now the views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company or individual.